Morning. Really glad you're here, and uh, welcome to our online audience that is streaming with us this morning. Glad that you're part of this too. We come into the last part of a four-part series that we've been working through um, called His Story, and the goal was to help you see your story in the midst of His story. I'd give you, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a specific passage to turn to this morning, but we're going to be all over the place, so I, I'm going to encourage you to follow along on the screens and watch there. You might want to write down some of these Bible passages in your notes this morning. Um, specifically, the reason we've gone to this particular area of studying his story is so that y- you will know your story, because m- many people are good with the thought that God has a destiny for them in heaven. But not a lot of people are good with the thought that they've been forgiven. Even mature believers really struggle with that. The the reality that the sin that they've been involved in throughout the course of their life, or maybe as recently as this last week, that Jesus died to forgive that. And let me flesh that out with you just a little bit. If I said to you what we've been declaring over the last four weeks, you are who God declares you to be. And God declared you forgiven, and God declared you an heir for the kingdom of heaven. If I asked everybody to say amen to that, you would say amen, right? But there's those moments in our life like midnight, three in the morning, Monday at two in the afternoon, when we begin thinking, man, I don't know if I really believe that I'm actually forgiven for that. Maybe even walking in the auditorium this morning and seeing that there's communion tables set up and that we're about to participate in taking the elements made you just cringe a little bit like you're thinking, I know what I did this last week. I don't feel qualified to participate in that. And so many people secretly think, how do I know that I'm really forgiven? How do I know that I'm actually destined for eternity in heaven? Well, here's what we know. Uh, Rich wrote this study that we've been working through for the four weeks to get us to the point where we could tell our story at the end of it. You might have noticed in the study guide there were these little blank lines so you could write your story. But the reality is you're not going to tell your story until you know that you know that you know that you're really forgiven. Because most people aren't going to talk about it if they're not personally convinced themselves. So I'd love to pray with you right now before we step into this and we sow these last three weeks together into this fourth week and we ask God to guide us. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single individual in this auditorium right now and every single person who's watching online. Every one of them is precious to you. So you desire that we would know you better, that we would be drawn closer to you. You desire that we would be reminded that you forgave our sins if we're just willing to believe. So God, draw us to that place where we see who we are, who you declared us to be. Not what society says, but what you say. So God, I ask that you would speak right now through the power of your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide, and speak powerfully. Don't let us leave here unchanged today, God. I plead for that in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. 
Today you get to see that God is actually a God of order. He has a system to why he does what he does. There's a purpose behind it. But a bigger picture than that, you get a chance to participate, if you desire to, to participate in communion, lifting the element, the cup and the bread together. And in the midst of that, you're going to hear a statement from Jesus, which I think many people in church are very familiar with. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 11:25. especially the New Hope family is familiar with this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So New Hope is 11 years old this year, and for every year, every month, on the first weekend of every month we participated in communion and we read 1 Corinthians 11:25 and sometimes it can become so rehearsed and so rote in our mind it just flies right past without us stopping to think about what does that mean in the big picture the new covenant is actually a contract the contract that God has made and the contract that he's made is to forgive your sins and to destine you for eternity with Him, for a relationship with Him. The mediator of the contract is Jesus. And at the core of the contract is His death. Now, that's a very brief way of describing it, but in brief, that explains why Jesus is at the Last Supper. And He's lifting the cup and lifting the bread. Let me take you into Luke twenty-two twenty, and you'll see Jesus saying those same words again. He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The new contract. In other words, it requires blood to ratify the contract that God made with humanity. I want you to get down why Jesus is using that language. It'll really help you a lot as we work through this today. So in the Hebrew language, you may have already looked in your notes this morning, and maybe you saw the Hebrew word or the Greek words in there. In the Hebrew language, the word covenant is berith. And it says, in the sense of cutting, what is that? There's a compact being made. Well, here's the way that it was used in the ancient days. And we're talking about way before the time of Jesus. An animal was taken and cut and split in half. Now, it could have been as small as a lamb or it might have been as large as an ox. So let's envision this. A a young man wants to marry a young woman. and He comes and asks the father of the young woman for her hand in marriage. The father of the bride and the father of the groom come together and they enter into a covenant together. They would take an ox and split the ox literally in half, and it was a bloody, gory mess. And if you're thinking it was ugly to look at, absolutely. You got the two halves of animals split on either side, laying in a field, and the fathers walk between the two halves of the separated animals with this thought in mind. If I renege on this contract... As it has been done to this animal, so shall it be done to me. That's how seriously the vows are taken. That's how seriously the contract was entered into. So we go to the New Testament and we find Jesus using this covenant word, diethike, in the Greek language. And he's talking about a contract. And you might be thinking in your mind right now, when did God do that? When did he make a blood contract, a covenant? 
Well, with that question hanging in our mind, let's go to a 30,000-foot view of all the things we've done on this speed tour through these last three weeks so we understand how this covenant has been woven into this story as you've walked through it these last three weeks. In week one, we learned at some point in eternity past there was a rebellion in heaven. Lucifer, who is the highest created order of God's angels, rebelled against God. And in the rebellion against God, he was filled up with pride, and he said, I will ascend and be as God, and God had to send him out of heaven. And there was a mutiny that took place, and so Jesus says in Luke 10, 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, because his name had been changed. He's no longer Lucifer, he's now Satan. And so we spent some time in the attempt to understand the magnitude of the destruction that that decision brought when Satan decided to rebel against God. And from there, we went into Genesis 3, and we began looking at the rebellion that was brought to earth and the involvement of the Satan beings, the demons who joined him in the rebellion into the garden. So in week two, we learned about the demons, and we learned about the angels, and we learned about the fall of humanity, and Genesis 3.1 says this, and he, speaking of Lucifer, Satan, said to the woman, indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And we discovered that the approach was to get Eve to question God, to doubt God's Word, because if you can get someone to doubt God's Word and to think that He can't be trusted and to think there's no consequences for disobeying God, well, score, and that was Satan's score, and you know where the story goes from there. They made the choice. The decision was made, and they chose something other than God, and the next thing we found was Adam and Eve had made fig leaf shorts, and they're hiding behind a tree, and that's a really stupid thing to play hide-and-seek with an omniscient God, isn't it, church? You can't hide from an omniscient God, but the result of the sin was the catastrophic reality that things on our planet today are radically different than what they were in the original creation. So we spent time with the reality that there's a reason why things are broken on this planet, why there's busted relationships, why children die with disease, why is there hunger, why is there war, why is there famine? It all goes back here to Genesis 3 we discovered there's a catastrophic reality for sin. So God had to deal with the fallout of the rebellion. But we discovered, as we talked about last week, before God pronounces the consequences, He pronounces the promise. He declares a covenant. So let me show you the first contract, and it's Genesis 3.15. God speaking, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. If you have the NIV version, the New International Version of the Bible, the word crush is substituted there, and that's a much more accurate word. He will crush your head. Well, who's God talking to here? He's talking to Satan. He's talking to Satan, and Adam and Eve are present because they've just rebelled against God. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or maybe new to church, you might be reading that and say, well, where's the promise? I'm, I'm not seeing a promise there. And some people will be thinking, see, that's why I don't read the Bible. Because, like, how do I make sense of that? Let me help you with that so you understand what's going on here. Understand, first of all, enmity is the word hostility or hatred. So God has pronounced something that's going to be really ugly. 
He says there's going to be hatred among two groups between your seed and her seed. Well, who's your seed? Well, he's speaking to Satan. He's speaking to the fallen one, Lucifer, his seed. Well, who is his seed? Well, his seed, according to the Bible, is the Antichrist. So God's projecting way forward in time, saying there's going to be war. There's going to be enmity between her seed, Eve's seed, and the Antichrist. Her seed is who? Well, her seed is the offspring, the offspring of everyone who came forth from the line of Eve, generations that will come forth from her. What's it pointing forward to? To a future redeemer. How do we know that? Because of the second line in the sentence. He will crush your head. You will bruise him on the heel. How do we know that that's talking about Jesus? Well, let's just think through what happened with Jesus. If you had a choice between receiving one of two wounds and you had a choice between receiving a wound on your heel or a wound on your head, you're going to choose your heel every time. Because a wound on your heel, it might leave you with a limp, but a wound on the head, that can be fatal. That can be crushing. God added the word crushing your head. What do we know that happened with Jesus? We know that he crushed Satan. It points specifically to Jesus because God's declaring all the way back in the garden, this promised one who's coming from the line of Eve, not only going to crush Satan, but he's going to suffer a wound in the process. And you're looking at the emblem of the instrument of the wound behind me. The cross would be the place that would deliver the bruise to the heel of the one who would be coming in the future. So God is speaking in fairly obscure terms here in Genesis 3.15, enough though that people understood there's something that's going to change. There's a promised one who's coming, and it's going to cost him. The wound is going to be the bruising, and the, speaking of the excruciating way in which Jesus will die. So already we've seen all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a price to pay, that Jesus would be broken that he would be bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah wrote. By his stripes we are what, church? By his stripes we are healed. See, how did Isaiah know that? He's looking at Genesis 3.15. He knew that there would be a cost. And you have to stop at this point, especially if you're new to church, and say, why would God do this? Why would he enter into a covenant like this to bring this about? And I would answer very quickly to you because of his vast love for you. And that can just fly right over your head until you stop and think about it. Because Psalm 103 says, So high as the heavens are above the earth is the love of God for you. Let me put that in context in a way that my wife and I understood as we were raising our children. Um, we have four children. And our firstborn son is Adam, so we started this process with him. And maybe some of you parents have done this with your children. If you don't have children yet, you might want to do it in the future. But when Adam was of speaking age, probably around two to two and a half, and could actually carry on sentences, we had this habit of doing this thing with him. And we'd say, how big is Adam? And Adam would say, so big. He'd put his hands way up above his head. And we'd do it again. How big is Adam? He goes, so big. And then once in a while, Lori would turn the conversation and say, how much does mommy love Adam? And he goes, so big. And he'd push in his belly button right there and he'd giggle. How big 
is the love of God for you so big, so big that God the Son became Jesus the man because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Don't you just want to say amen to that? It's like, what? How, how vast is that kind of love? Would you give up your own to buy a bunch of, back a bunch of people who are in total rebellion against you? The love of God is so big. God the Son became Jesus the man. So the first promise is made, and it's an unconditional promise. God's saying, it will happen. There's no condition based on it, even though Satan does everything he can to try and push back against it and stop it. And so we talked about in the last four weeks how every one of these moves on planet Earth has been move, counter-move, move, counter-move. God taking an action, Satan taking a counter-action, trying to stop God's plan. So the first promise is actually one of seven prominent covenants. And you may have already seen that in your notes this morning, that there's seven covenants listed that are in the Bible. We can't get into all of them this morning. Know this, of the seven that you're going to see, you'll see them up on the screen, that four of them are made specifically to the nation of Israel. And those would be the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Those are made specifically to the nation of Israel, which has an effect on the rest of the world. But the other three, the other three are between God and all of humanity. And they really play into your story. You look with me, Adam. Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. That's the one Jesus is talking about. I want to understand that one. So the Adamic covenant, the, the one that we just talked about a few minutes ago, that's where God stepped in in Genesis 3.15 and said, I will make a provision. There's one coming forth from her seed, and I'm going to send a deliverer. We got past that one, and now we look at the Noahic covenant because we talked about that last week in the story of Noah. We understand that one in general. Even people who don't go to church have heard about a flood, and they've heard about Noah, and they know him in some fashion. Well, the covenant that God made there was to humanity in general and specifically to Noah, and it took place in two stages. What are the two stages? God said even though things were so rotten on earth that he would preserve humanity through one person, Noah, and through his three sons and their wives. That's just the first part of the covenant. After the flood came another part of the covenant. God committed to destroy all of creation, but he said, I will never do it again through a flood. He did that once. And so he gave the rainbow that you've seen after every thunderstorm, if you're just looking in the eastern sky, a reminder. I have set my bow in the clouds as a reminder that I enter into a covenant with mankind. He said, it's my bow. It belongs to me. We read in Revelation that it actually encircles his throne. And he said, I've taken that and I've given it to humanity as a reminder. But there's two stages to the reminder. And even mature believers in Christ miss this next part. The two stages are this. The rainbow is there as a reminder that God would never destroy the earth again through a flood. But the second part of it is this that God does and can and will judge sin. 
Every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder that's God's activity. He does judge sin. He doesn't just put up with things. Let me give you an example from the Bible. 2 Peter 2.4, and Peter's writing about God not sparing angels. 2 Peter 2.4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he lists out a whole bunch of other actions and go down to verse 9. Then he says, then... The Lord knows how to do what, Peter? He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. For what? For the day of judgment. Because God can and does do that. So that was week three on our speed tour through this timeline. And we stopped off with Noah last week. We looked a little bit at the Tower of Babel. But we briefly mentioned the Abrahamic covenant. And the covenant that God made with Abraham is that he would make him a great nation. And that nations would proceed forth from his loins. And that God would raise up a people. And that he would give him a land. But also that all the earth would be blessed. So Abraham's not told how that's going to happen. Just that it's going to happen. God's going to do it. So here's what we landed on last week. And we've been talking about this for four weeks now. That faith is believing what God has revealed Faith. Abraham's called the father of faith. He believed God, even though he didn't know how God was going to do it. He believes what God has revealed. Now, moving forward really, really quickly, after Abraham came Isaac, and then came Jacob, and then came 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And in the midst of it, at the very tail end, God raises up a leader by the name of Moses. And in the midst of it, he has established a nation. So it's no longer just Abraham and his family or his tribe or his village, but it's millions of people who are living in the Middle East and they're under the heel of the Egyptians and they're set free by God. And in the midst of being set free, they're given a code of laws by which they are to function as a nation. But the greatest provision within the Abrahamic covenant is that the families of this planet, you included right now, all the world would be blessed, which is a direct reference again to Jesus. Genesis 12, 3. Look with me. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why is that a reference to Jesus? Because he biologically descended from the line of Abraham, came right from the Jewish people, born a Jew. So let's understand the next stage of the Mosaic Covenant and the, the covenants, the Mosaic Covenant specifically, before we get to the New Covenant. Just refresh with yourself this one thought. Look at the covenants again. The Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New. Uh, we won't get into the Davidic, but think of the Mosaic this way. Part of the Mosaic Covenant is the Ten Commandments. Along with the Ten Commandments, there's 600 others. One of the biggest commandments that was given to the people of God, that's part of the law, is that they, as the people of God, would commit to the process of carrying out a symbolic meal on a regular basis in order to remember that God is their deliverer. So we see the groundwork for communion being laid in the Old Testament. They called it Passover. 
And Jesus at the Last Supper, at the night that he's being betrayed, is part of a Passover supper. And he's at that meal when he says, stop everything. There's a new covenant. Now, in biblical terms, the Mosaic covenant is known as the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant was incredibly rigorous to obey. Under this contract, the law required and demanded a daily performance of sacrifices. You had to come to the priest and say, I committed sin, and I've got to have an animal offered for me because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the Bible says. And so, Mr. Priest, would you do this on my behalf? And they would bring an animal before the priest, and the priest would make a a blood offering for them in some fashion. They were really, really poor. They might just bring a simple thing like a dove. It could be a, a big animal or a small animal because there's a wage for sin. There's a paycheck for sin, and the wages of sin is death, Scripture says. So they had to do this over and over and over and over again, But Moses was looking forward and said, something's got to change because they're going to mess up. They're going to fail at this. God's got to give them a new heart. Look at me on the screen at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why did he say that? Because they didn't. They're just showing up for church. They're just singing songs and participating in communion and feeling no effect of a relationship with God whatsoever. They're just going through the process because they're following laws that were written in stone. It never became real to them. So Moses is saying, God's got to give you a new heart. So what he foresaw is that this group of people would keep failing and failing and failing and failing. He said, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more. And Moses wasn't alone in this. Jeremiah anticipated a new covenant also and used the exact same words. Look at with me, 600 years before Jesus. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God And Jeremiah wasn't alone in this. Ezekiel saw the exact same thing. Look at this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from your heart the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. New hope. Do you realize these guys are anticipating the very thing that you enjoy today? You've got the spirit of God in you. They could follow it because it was written in stone. God says, I'm going to put my heart right in you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a brand new beginning. My spirit will be there to keep you in check. And the law provided none of those things. That's why you find Paul writing the book of Romans a thousand years later saying things like this. You probably remember this. It was only a year ago. (laughs) We're back in Romans next week, baby. Yes. Okay, Romans 8.3. What the law could not do, weak as it was. You know what he's saying right there? What the law could not do, weak as it was. Why? Because it's totally dependent upon mankind showing up with the offering, saying, God, will you forgive me again? I'm going to offer another dove. I'm going to offer another lamb. I'm going to offer another goat. Weak as it was through the flesh. Check that next part. I love that. Thank you, Paul, for including that. What the, what, what the law could not do, God did. Powerful church. 
God did it. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So check this. The new covenant was anxiously anticipated by the ancients looking forward in time. While the old covenant is still in effect, they're looking for it. Ask yourself this question. How could these people living 1,500 years before Jesus foresee that? Moses is 1,500 years before Jesus is born. Jeremiah, 600 years. How could they possibly look forward and see this new covenant thing? Well, first of all, for this reason, anybody living under the law understood that there was no way to actually keep it. There had to be something better. So just envision this with me. You commit a sin. Whatever you might have committed yesterday or a month ago, you know you got to go see the priest because God made it a law. And so you start storing up your sin, and somebody cuts you off in traffic. They run their donkey right through a red light, and you're laying on your horn, shaking your fist, and maybe some fingers pop up. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Or maybe somebody else got the promotion on the fishing boat that you wanted. They're like elevated, and you begin gossiping. Or the lady that lives next to you got some clothing, and you think, wow. Why does, she, why does her husband provide those things? Why, why can't I have things like that? And they're just packing it on and packing it on and packing it on. And then they show up at the temple and come before the priest. Say, I've got an animal here to offer for my sin. And the priest goes through the process of splitting the animal. And, and it's gory and it's a mess. And then you turn around and you leave the temple and you start walking a little taller like, Okay, I got a clean slate. Kind of nailed that. I got a brand new beginning. And you step outside the temple only but to have somebody run their donkey by you again and cut you off. And you realize, oh man, I got to turn around and go back into the temple again and do this all over again. And it went on for hundreds of years. Day after day after day. People repeating the same process. There has to be something better so the old covenant served its purpose because it effectively it demonstrated we can't be covered by our own works. We can't make enough fig leaf shorts to hide out in. There aren't enough trees to hide us from God. So God has to make the ultimate covering. That's one of the two reasons, but here's the primary reason. How could they see it 1,500 years in advance? The primary reason is this. They understood it was coming because God made a promise, and God cannot lie. I'll give you all a chance to say amen to that one. God cannot lie. He can't. You want to enter into a contract with anybody? You want it to be God, because he's never going to renege on his contract. So they understood that God made a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Check this. Even though things were busted... Even though the relationship had been breached, even though there was sin dripping off of them, before God announces the consequences, He announces the promise. From her seed will come one who will crush your head. And God enters into a covenant and brings us back. So we understand the old covenant had to be replaced by a better covenant. 
If you're writing things down this morning, you want to write down this next verse, Hebrews 7, 22. Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus is the guarantee. Jesus came to initiate the new covenant. If you're new to church this morning, you need to know this. You can enter into this new covenant. You can be part of this contract with God in which he will forgive your sins and destine you for eternity. But it's possible only on one condition. And the condition is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture says this, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. And the amazing benefit for those of us who believe that is that we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. That's God's commitment. You're no longer under the law. You're under grace. Get your amens ready for this. Romans 6.14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So we're about to pick up the cup, and we're about to pick up the bread, and I want you to do this mentally with me. Go full circle all the way back to the upper room. It's the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed. Satan is about to enter into Judas, according to God's word. Because it's a series of move, counter move. Jesus is about to be arrested in the garden and hauled away in chains. And he's in the upper room and he begins initiating a contract review. If you've ever been in a mortgage closing, maybe you've been part of contract negotiations. When the attorneys are gathered together in the room, they usually bring together the two parties who are agreeing to the contract. And there's always a contract review that takes place. They begin talking through the conditions and the terms of the contract. So in the midst of this review, Jesus holds up the cup. He says, I'm entering into a new contract with you, a new covenant, which will be in my blood. And this cup that he's about to carry, it was determined from before time, before you and I ever walked the planet, before Adam and Eve ever walked the planet, before the planet was ever formed, God knew that he was going to have to do this. It's the same cup that Jesus speaks of in the garden when he's arrested. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he knew what the bruising was going to be on the cross. He knew what the excruciating pain would be. So in humanness, as a human saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But what's so important is how he answered his own request. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So at a contract review, the parties are always present. So we find in the upper room, Satan is there. He's entered into Judas. Luke records it. John records it. Mark records it. So Satan is there. The believers in Christ are there, represented by the eleven God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're always in harmony together. They're always together. Angels are watching, and God's initiating a contract review, and he says, this is going to cost something. 
Look with me on the screen, Luke twenty two twenty, And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you. It's poured out for you. It's the new covenant, and it's a blood covenant because it requires blood to ratify the contract that God made because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So nothing else is sufficient to cover my sin. Some of you that grew up in church, you, you know the tune, the old song, what can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? There's a reason those guys wrote those old songs. They understood this theology. So under this new covenant, you've been given a choice this morning. You are given a choice to either receive the forgiveness that God offers of your sin as a free gift or reject it. Here's what your responsibility is this morning. Your responsibility is to exercise faith in what God has revealed to you. Because that's what we understand faith is. Faith is believing what God has revealed. He's revealed his story to you over four weeks. If, if you've come to church over this period of time and you found yourself, I'm not sure I actually have been a believer up to this point, right now where you're sitting, you can confess faith in Jesus Christ. You can pick up the cup and pick up the bread as a new believer in Jesus simply by saying this to God the Father. I'm a sinner. I recognize that God and I need a Savior. Do you think God will neglect that request, church? No. He never, never, never rejects that. If you come with a humble heart and you say, Father, I need that. I need that new beginning. So, you do have a story to tell, church. How do you know that you know that you know that you really are saved? Because God made a contract and God cannot lie, right? So, if this week you find yourself walking a little taller, smiling a little bigger, feeling that confidence, I really have been forgiven, and maybe somebody at the office or at school says to you, well, why do you act that way? What do you mean? Well, you seem so much happier. Well, you can answer this way. Well, it's because I'm under contract. We should get T-shirts made. Hashtag, I'm under contract, right? It's just a reminder. This is what communion's for. It's a reminder. You're under contract. God bought you at great price, and he made a covenant with you. So typically when we do communion, we read through 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to do that this morning. What we do right after that is we go to a time where you can just reflect before you come up to pick up the elements, reflecting on everything you just heard. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Talk to the Father about where you're at in relationship and what He's done for you. And when you're ready, come up, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest.